He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus, God, I thank you. I lost it. Okay. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but, be, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Emily, for reading. Have you ever found yourself thinking or saying, like, that's actually not what I meant, and that's actually not what I said. You really didn't, you really didn't get the message, did you? It's very frustrating when that happens, especially when you like really needed someone, really wanted someone to get a particular message. And for some reason, some inexplicable reason, they don't hear it or they mishear it. And it's like, I, that's not what I was saying. And I really wanted you to pay attention. I really wanted you to listen. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus would say that to us. I'm positive his disciples didn't always pick up exactly what he was saying. But I wonder as we listen to the words, even the words that Emily read a moment ago, do we, do we hear those clearly? I think sometimes words become so familiar that they may even lose a little bit of the edge that they had when Jesus originally said them. And I would not want that to happen here. I, I do think we have, as we hear that parable, and my guess is for many of you, you've heard that or something like that before. My guess is there are a few problems we may have on our end that make it harder to hear the message that was given, or at least hear it as clearly as Jesus wanted us to hear. There are a couple problems, and I want to actually, I think it'd be helpful to just identify those problems even before we dig into the passage. One of them I would call, if I had to name them, I would name the Pharisee perception problem. We perceive Pharisees differently. So when you hear Pharisee, when I hear Pharisee, we naturally think that equals not a good guy, like the bad guy in the story. Clearly, this is going to be the bad person. That's where our mind goes. We're conditioned to hear it that way. The only issue with that is no one would have heard it that way. Of the original hearers that Jesus is, is teaching, no one's hearing going, oh yeah, I know who the Pharisees are. They're the bad ones. Actually, it's, it's almost the exact opposite. They're going in their mind, when they hear Pharisee called out, they're going, boy, those are the ones that are trying. <laughs> like, if anybody is going to be right with God, it's probably going to be them, because they're the ones working the hardest at it. So again, as we read this parable, it's going to help us to realize, when we hear Pharisee, you don't immediately kind of throw up the flag, oh yeah, worst person in the world. I know who those people are. It'll be helpful for us to realize everybody else is impressed by them in that culture. So that's the Pharisee perception problem. But another problem that I think also hinders us, and again, I just want to name these and get these out in the open before we dig too far. I, I'm going to name it the messy but cool problem. The messy but cool problem, we hear someone talk about their faults these days, and it's almost like we don't think that's a bad, well, we think that's a good thing. Like, of course, you just kind of, you have problems, that's 
Like, good for you saying all these problems you have. And so we hear someone refer to themselves as a sinner. And I think sometimes, here's, here's why I think it's a problem. I'm not talking about the person who is working through serious challenges in their life and acknowledges that and is in some sort of recovery trying to be honest about who they are and where they are. I'm thinking of the cheap line of thought where you kind of give a casual confession that just seems to excuse the way you're living. And that's a problem. If we think we can just go, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm just keeping it real. And somehow that excuses everything. Then, then we're going to hear this and we're going to identify, of course we are, we're going to identify with the tax collector and go, yeah, we all got our faults. Like, yeah, my life's a little messy, but it's, it's okay to not be okay. We're going to find words like that. It's, yeah, of course I have a little bit of baggage. Of course I have some issues, but hey, we're just being vulnerable. We're just putting it all out there. See how you understand that's, that's going to be a hindrance for how we read this. And that is all too often how we post, how we share, how we think. So we quickly identify with the good guy, but I'm not sure that cheap confession, cheap confession actually goes deep enough to where the tax collector, what is he doing? Is he just going, just being vulnerable here at the temple? I think more's going on, and I want to make sure we don't miss that. So let's be careful, and let's, let's assume what always is a good assumption, and that is that Jesus is talking to us. Not the person who we go, like, I wish they were here to hear this, because this would be perfect for them. But let's just assume Jesus is talking to us. And here's another good assumption to make, and that is that no one really sets out intentionally to be self-righteous. No one intentionally, like, I don't think they do. My, my life's ambition isn't, it hasn't ever been like, you know what, I'd like to be a hypocrite. Give me 10 or 15 years, I actually like would be more judgmental and more self-righteous. No, no one wants to do that. I don't, I don't even, even like really set my mind to work at that. Like that's actually not appealing to me. But somewhere, if I don't want to do that, somewhere there had to be a starting point. And I think that's important for us to realize. To go the route of self-righteousness, often there's a starting point that's actually a good starting point. A well-intentioned starting point. But somehow it got twisted and... And went a very different direction. Something happened. And the way Jesus words it here, it's a, the way Luke words what Jesus is doing is he says he tells this parable because there were people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So that's like do-it-yourself, DIY righteousness. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So there's, there's a righteousness in Scripture that comes as a gift, but this is kind of a fake righteousness, a, a, a do-it-on-your-own kind of righteousness. And a couple sure signs it's fake is they treat others with contempt. As I re read and reread this parable, here's, here's my conclusion. My conclusion is the path to being self-righteous is actually not a hard path to take. It's actually probably, like here we are you know, in, a, in a state park and there's lots of different paths. Actually, it's probably the easiest path to go down will be the path of 
self-righteousness. And if that is the case, if it's so easy to go down that path, I better mark it out so I can guard my mind and guard my heart and guard my thoughts and guard my assessments of others carefully so I don't find in my heart going down that easy path that actually takes me further and further away from God. Look at, look at Luke 18 again, verse 11. So it tells us that the Pharisee was, actually says he was standing by himself and he prayed. This is how he prayed, God, I thank you. Some translations even say, not just that he was standing by himself, but that he prayed with himself. And I, I think that's a good picture to get exactly what's going on. So he stands by himself, invokes God's name, supposedly thanks God. I mean, that's those words, God, I thank you. But the prayer isn't a prayer of thanksgiving. Nothing about what he's doing is thanking God really about anything. So that prayer is like so distasteful and so, seems like so far from the heart of God. But again, I want to I assume that nobody sets out to, to kind of fly up a, a self-righteous prayer. Like, who sets out to do that originally? So if we kind of retrace some steps here and try to figure out, okay, maybe it starts with good, real, honest prayer. Maybe the prayer way back in, you know, who knows when, started off with, like, thanking God. Really, like, really thanking God and confessing sin. And maybe prayer was all about asking Him for things, asking Him for help, expressing your praise, ex expressing your dependence on the Lord. Maybe that's where it started, but somewhere along the line, it worked. prayer is hard work. Like it's a daily grind. And maybe there was a time where you prayed and you were disappointed because the prayer didn't get answered. Or actually, maybe it did get answered, but the answer was no. And that was the last thing you wanted. And then it becomes harder to pray, but but again, if we, if we think through this, you can kind of keep at least saying prayers. You can kind of shortcut it. Publicly, you can. You, you can put words out there, and sometimes maybe nobody even notices what you're doing. With the right language on the surface, you could even pray. I could pray, and it look admirable, decent, obedient. You could even call it righteous. It would look that way. But Jesus, again, told this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So, so I wonder, here's a, here's a question. I wonder, do you, do I have a righteousness that comes through, I'm going to refer to as God talk, little g, little g-o-d, God talk. I'm not talking about bringing up the Lord in conversations. Actually, I think it's a healthy sign of being a Christian when in your conversations, the Lord comes up. You, you have a frame of life where out, out of your mouth are, are words that acknowledge you are a Christian and you, you have a relationship with God. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about mentioning his name. I, I think Christians should do that. But God talk. I, I first heard the word when I read some books by Eugene Peterson. So Eugene Peterson would use this term, and I think it's a, a helpful one. And he would say this, God talk is is taking rich theological and spiritual language and cheapening it for short-term ends. So it's like using the same language, but then, but then using it to manipulate or depersonalize rather than to love and serve in Jesus' name. It's, it's like the same words, but you're, you're using them to appear and to cover some things that aren't there. 
you have the words, and prayer can be, and I think prayer can definitely be a breeding ground for God talk. Prayer can definitely be the place where we've heard enough, we've been around enough, we know the formula, we know you say this at the beginning, you say this at the end, you throw this in the middle, and there you have a prayer. If there was a way, if there was a way to like guard our hearts on this, if there was a way to put like a warning sign, I think like we, before we walk down that path, could we put a warning sign that says, be careful when you find yourself using God talk without a relationship. Just be careful. Be careful when you find yourself using God talk but it's gotten further and further distant from a relationship. Because God talk will not make you righteous. You, you can't be righteous that way. Righteousness in God's word is a gift from God. It's a relationship of acceptance in the presence of God. And it doesn't come from invoking God's name, however you may choose to do so at a given moment. It comes from God. Can, can we keep reading, because I, I think there are plenty of other warning signs in this passage. So again, he prays, but he's kind of praying with himself, by himself, and he, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other, other people. Like, I'm not like the extortioners. I'm not like the unjust. I'm not like the adulterers. And then he looks and notices, and I'm not like him either. That tax collector, right over there. I'm not, like, I'm not like him either. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. People are called out, an individual is called out, and it just sounds awful. But again, I want, I want to ask the question. I want to at least entertain the thought that some of that had a decent starting point. I know the ending point is, like, terrible, but could it have been... Could it have been that there is initially a desire to be like Jesus and not be like the world? So James 4 says, if you're friends with the world, you actually are in a hostile position with God. John, one of Jesus' disciples, would say, don't love the world. So maybe there's an initial desire of like, I don't, I don't want my life to look like those that have not trusted in Jesus. If he's not the Lord of their life, I don't, I don't want my life to look like that. And so you begin to map out your life where it looks different. You try, you try to be wise. You try to even draw lines and go, you know, here's a line that I, I don't want to cross. I, I want to live on this side of the line because I, I, I read a, a book like Psalms and Psalm 1 starts off with like us being encouraged not to be in a place where there are sinners and the wicked the ones who mock, like, you don't want to be in those groups. So I go, okay, I'm going to draw lines and not be in that group. There's a way that I want to live my life where I'm not part of people that God says are mockers. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be in that. Like, so how, many, how much good ambition could be? That, like, you're, you try to follow, but, but over time, the lines stay clear, but the relationship, the heart for Jesus fades. You still got all the lines, and they seem really close crystal clear, but the lines begin telling you, like, okay, here's the good people, and here's them, the others. 
And of course, I'm, I'm never them. I'm always the person on the right side of the line. And eventually, does that not like, I kind of feel good about myself because I'm, I'm part of that group. So you see, like it could even have a good starting place. But the question would be, do you have a righteousness that comes from separation and comparison? Separation, I'm not like them. Comparison, actually I'm better than they are. Are you finding your righteous? That's the, the D-I-Y righteous. Like, I'm not like them, and I'm better than them. And as long as I can always point to a them, it just feels good to be me and not them. We're more susceptible to this in our world than ever. Many of the things you will read, even things you didn't even go looking for, but many of the things that will find you this week will, will put these people in that group and you in the good group. And surely we know enough now about big tech that you know what they're going to do? They're going to reinforce your own tribe and going to show you again and again and in more heated terms how despicable everybody else is, but how you, my friend, you are on the right track. And they'll tell it to you again and again and again. This is no call to, like, not be discerning. So please don't mishear me. Like, there, there is real sin out there. There is a real devil. There are demonic poles. There are groups of people. I mean, we all, we'd have to be blind not to realize there are people that really don't value Jesus, and they don't value God's Word, and they don't value Christians living. I mean, we, we know that. What I do wonder I do wonder if there was a warning sign that we could helpfully put over our heart or in our mind and just kind of reinforce. Be careful when you find yourself categorizing others so that you can dismiss them. Be careful when you can just, I mean, and and is this not a, a temptation of our age where you can go, because now I can go simplistically, you're like them, and I don't, have to, I don't really have to care about you. I can choose not to love you, and I can feel pretty good about it. Because I thank God that I'm not like. But don't be mistaken. That road never leads to righteousness. Not real righteousness. Because righteousness won't be, oh, I'm in this selective tribe and not that one. Righteousness will always be a gift from God. It isn't based on how good I look compared to others. Like, you think I'm bad, but at least I'm better than... So see, I'm... It just never works like that. That's no formula. It's a relationship of acceptance in the presence of God. Do you feel, again, that, like... I would imagine the first hearers of Jesus like, you are... Jesus, you are leaning in here. Seem to be redrawing the map of Who's righteous and what's going on? There's some more words in the mouth of the Pharisee. He says in verse 12, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I get. Again, surely, surely it's a good thing. Like surely there, there should not be a relationship with God where self-denial is not a part of it. Even Jesus would say, 
You want to follow me, you take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. So some amount of self-denial, some practices of self-denial, surely that's a good thing. And surely would we not be like, our, our Lord and Savior Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So shouldn't generosity, like I give on everything that I, I get, I give a part of that. Like that's a part of who I am. Isn't that a good thing? So imagine that impulse. Surely any walk with God is going to have that impulse. And that it seems to be exactly what Jesus wants. And actually, even more than that, actually demands to follow him. And yet somewhere again, it turns. Maybe Jesus begins to fade but the self-denial and the generosity, like it just becomes who you are and the reason you're doing it shifts ever so slightly. Maybe people notice how much you deny yourself or how generous you are. It kind of feels good and self-satisfying to know, yeah, that is the person I am. Could it be, does my righteousness come on the surface, it looks admirable, decent, moral, and obedient. But does my righteousness come through achievement? I do this. I do this. I do this. You watch me at home. You watch me at work. You watch me with my family. You watch me with, with my neighbors. You watch me everywhere. And like, I may not be everything, but I'm doing a few things okay. Thank you. Could it be that? I, I, know, I know the tendency of my heart is to do this, mainly because if I get criticized, I can get defensive so quickly. And out of my defense, my like inner defense lawyer comes out with, here's five reasons why I'm actually a pretty good person. But when you think it's all about what you do and how well you do it and how much others benefit from, frankly, you being how great a person you are, when you go that road, like, would it be helpful to, like, okay, I sense in my heart, and thank God for a conscience and a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that moves us here. Could it be that we have the warning sign, be careful when you underestimate your need for mercy. Be careful when you start walking down the path where you feel like it's all about your achievement, because you can't be righteous through your achievements, no matter how many, no matter how impressive, because again, righteousness is a gift from God. It's a relationship of acceptance in the presence of God. And when I underestimate my need for mercy and go, no, no, quite frankly, I'm not perfect, but I deserve, like I look at my life and I, I think I'm, I'm an okay person. Does my righteousness come through achievement? Have I underestimated significantly my need for mercy? Is the parable doing its work in our hearts? Are we really hearing Jesus? So you have the picture of the Pharisee, but you go over to the tax collector in verse 13. Paints a different picture, doesn't it? He's standing at a distance, not because he's better, but because he honestly questions whether he is worthy to enter the presence of the temple. And he doesn't lift his eyes. How could, how could I ever approach God? This is why I don't think I don't just chalk this up to him going, yeah, life's a little bit messy for me. Like he's not even lifting up his eyes because he does not feel deeply in his heart that he is worthy. He beats his chest and it's, I'm tempted to think, oh, I guess they are like people just beat their chest a lot back then. You know, it's like, but actually as I read and studied the Jewish culture of the time, it's actually just very, very few references 
to certainly any male ever doing this in a public setting, like that this did not happen. It's a picture of humility. And he says, God be merciful to me, the one who has sinned, to me, the sinner. James tells us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus tells us this tax collector went home justified. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So where are we? I mean, I hope we see the warning signs. I hope they're clear. And here's where I've been this week. You know, I, so I generally start like on a, on a Monday, Tuesday, beginning to study, prepare for Sunday. And at the beginning of the week, I kind of want to identify pretty much with the tax collector. That's me. I'm humble. I realize my faults. And I feel like I'm, I'm okay. Like this one... Maybe this one's not for me, but I'll preach it for the others. I mean, I don't you know. Do we think that? Do we verbalize that? I guess I just did. But then quickly, this one turns on you. You think, I, I, I'm pretty confident I'm a lot more like the Pharisee. Maybe things aren't so good. And that's why this is hard. But then again, Jesus told us that the way of Jesus, I mean, this is Jesus' words. Like his way is, an, is a narrow path. It's, a, it's actually a hard road. It's always good and it's always right, but it's, it's not easy. As a matter of fact, it's so hard that Jesus said to follow him, you need a new heart. Jesus said to follow him, you need righteousness that you don't have and you can't manufacture. Jesus said to follow him, you are going to need the Holy Spirit of God to breathe into your life because otherwise you're, you're spiritually dead. So, so these are the stakes. Like, so... One thing we can factor into here is that this is Luke 18. So Luke 22 and Luke 23 tell us the story of Jesus going to the cross. So we are pretty close to the end of Jesus' earthly life where he goes to the cross for us. And if the cross tells us anything, we kind of hear the echoes of the man saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's like the cross is a place where God says emphatically, I am merciful to you and to you and to you and to you the sinner. If the cross is about anything, it's about all of us falling short of God's glory, all of us making a mess of our lives in more ways than we want to do so, and we need help. Interestingly enough, as I looked at that word, be merciful, there is a word in the New Testament for like just being sympathetic and genuine and like kind of feeling it for someone else and feeling sympathetic toward them. This word's a little bit different word. Mercy's still a fine translation, but it actually, it's actually regularly used in terms of sacrifice and atonement. So actually the word could be, a fine translation for this would be, God, make an atonement for me, the sinner. It's not just like God have some warm feelings toward me. It's God, make a, make a sacrifice for me, the one who has sinned, which totally makes sense. Because remember, the two men, the Pharisee, the tax collector, are going into the temple. And what would happen at the temple? What would happen at the temple is there would be like this high altar where priests would take a lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, and sacrifice that lamb for sins. And the priest would go inside the temple, inside the holy place, and would offer incense before God. And the priest would then, again, reappear where he would announce... It is finished. Like atonement's been made. The sacrifice has been accepted. Your sins are forgiven. And that's the backdrop of this whole story. 
with that as a backdrop, is it any wonder Jesus makes this amazing pronouncement where he says, that tax collector that says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, goes home right with God, declared righteous, receives the gift of righteousness. Maybe the other one felt like he deserved it, but only one walks out righteous. Flowing out of that, flowing out of hearing that declaration of righteousness, God be merciful to me, the sinner, paints a very different picture than the one that goes, at least I'm not like them. At least I don't do that. God, I thank you that I am, I do this. Here's the picture it paints. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because I want to cultivate a real relationship with you, not, not one that's filled with God talk. I want, to, I want to have a relationship with the one who loves me. I want to lean hard on your everlasting arms. And that's going to require time and honesty and devotion. That's going to take wrestling through some doubts, seeking help. But I want a real relationship with you. When flowing out of the sacrifice, like, okay, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and I see the cross and I go, yes, he has. It was finished upon that cross. That calibrates my assessment of others. God places others in my life to esteem, to love, but not to dismiss. The world doesn't need a church with a dismissive attitude. The world needs love. That doesn't diminish us. I mean, sure, we see the effects of sin. Sure, we go like, don't be a part of that group. Don't walk that way. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that with your lives. We see the mess. We see the cost of sin. But just like Jesus, we don't dismiss it. Our hearts are moved by it, and we move toward it, not away from it. It doesn't create in us a smugness of, at least I'm not like them. It helps us move toward them, loving our neighbor, esteeming others better than ourselves, doing for others what we would like for them to do for us. This is the way of Jesus, and there is no other way. This is what he's called us to do. Flowing out of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, we grow in our appreciation of our need for mercy because God has done what I could not do. He has taken away my sin. He's covered it completely. It is not charged to my record anymore. I'm righteous not because I've done a lot for God. I'm righteous not because, in comparison, I'm do better than I am righteous because I am in Jesus, the righteous one. And that is where I will forever be because of the work Christ has done and the sealing of the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. Do, you, do we enjoy that? Do we appreciate that? Because in a moment, we'll have an opportunity to worship and say, before that throne, I have something strong and I have something righteous and it's not my own. I have a great high priest. God resists the proud. Oh, but God moves toward the humble, the ones who say, be merciful to me, the sinner. Where do you find yourself in relationship to God today? Let me pray for us. Father, humble our hearts. Fill us as a church that is stunned again by amazing grace. Help us appreciate the full dimensions of what it means that you're merciful to sinners.
Father, guard us. Let us see the warning signs clearly when we walk down the path of self-righteousness so that we turn around and repent. Oh, Lord, only you could do this work. Like, left to our own, we're, we're just going to keep walking down, feeling better and better about ourselves and how tragic to walk that path further and further from you. Thank you, Lord, you hear us, and no excuses, no cover. Our only covering is you, so we're running to you for our help and our hope. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.